Okay, so we're going to turn our attention to God's Word for a, uh, a short period of time this morning. And if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 23. We started a series last week looking at the last words of Jesus from the cross called Famous Last Words. And uh, in God's providence, I think that the passage we're looking at this morning is really uh, the ideal passage to be looking at on a morning like this. So we're going to read Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 39. And let me encourage you, if you are at home in your pajamas or wherever you are, to stand with me as we read God's word together. Um, Worship is an embodied experience, and the postures that we take um, shape our hearts and our habits towards God. And so we stand to give uh, attention and respect to the word of God. Luke 23, starting at verse 39, this is uh, the description of Jesus hanging on the cross between two thieves. And it says this, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And this is God's word. You can be seated. I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Those are the last words of Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo da Vinci, of course, was an exceptional artist, an inventor, a creator. He painted the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper. Uh, He is widely regarded as one of the greatest minds in all of human history. And yet, despite all that he did and created and envisioned and imagined, at the end of his life, he considered that he had not lived up to his potential, that he had not done enough, that there was something he could have done more Something better. I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality that it should have. Incredible, isn't it? (laughs) Somebody's final words tell us a lot about who they are and what they believe themselves to be about. And in this series, Famous Last Words, we're looking at the last words of Jesus from the cross. What were Jesus' last words? What do they tell us about who he is? And what does that have to do with us and the way that we live our lives? I'd already scheduled this passage this morning that, uh, that I'm looking at. And as I said, it could not be more fitting for this morning because what we see in this small snapshot is three men. And they're all hanging on a cross and they're all dying and they all say something in this passage. And what I want you to see this morning is this. Uh, why do we miss who Jesus is? How do we see who Jesus is? And what do we get when we truly see Jesus? If you truly see Jesus for who he is and what he accomplished in his final moments here, it will transform the way that you live your life now in the present. So first, how do we miss? How do we miss who Jesus is? The first thief, he's hanging on the cross. 
and everybody is mocking Jesus. Uh, the Pharisees, the crowds, and the two thieves on his right and left get in on the action, and they begin to mock Jesus as well. But in his words, we see why it is so easy for us to miss Jesus. The first thief says to him, if you are the Christ or the Messiah, Christ is not Jesus' last name, it's a, it's, a, it's a title, it means he's the one, he's the one who's come to make everything right. And he says, if you are the Christ or the Messiah, save yourself and us. What's he really saying? What he's saying is, if you really are the one who has come to make everything right, to put an end to violence, to put a death to sin, if you really are the one, then prove it. Prove it to me. And friends, uh, I, I think what he's saying uh, should give us a lot of compassion for him. That we, like him, often miss what Jesus is saying. Because what he's saying is, this is not what greatness looks like. A man hanging on a cross is not what power, it's not what authority, it's not what, um, you know, pow- it's not what glory looks like. Um, a Messiah cannot save anyone if he's dead. That's what this man believes, and that I think is so often what we believe. I don't know if you remember the movie The Matrix. The Matrix, okay? Uh, if you've never seen The Matrix, you probably didn't go to college in the late 90s or early 2000s, because um, I watched it every Friday night of my sophomore year in college. Um, but there's this, uh, the, the movie The Matrix is about Neo, and, they've, and Neo is the one who's going to save mankind from uh, the machines, right? And there's this point where Cypher has gone over to the dark side and Cypher is going to kill Neo and he's there and uh, he, he's kind of talking to, to Neo uh, as Neo is in the Matrix and so not conscious. And, uh, and, and Cypher says out loud, he says, if Neo really is the one, there'd have to be some kind of miracle to stop me from killing him. Because how can he be the one if he's dead? And right then, somebody comes and just fries him and blows him away, right? How can he save anyone if he is dead? How can he be the Messiah if he's dead? And so many of us think of Jesus like this. Everybody believes that Jesus lived. You know, there's too much evidence to believe that Jesus never lived. Most of us have this general sense that Jesus was a nice guy. He was a good teacher. He did a lot of great things. uh, That he died in a general sense. Um, He kind of was a wonderful man whose life went in a very tragic direction right at the end. I mean, what what a tragedy. His life was cut short by a series of unfortunate events. But the idea that he is the one, the Messiah, that he is the one who makes sense of all our lives, that he is the one who who will make everything right in the world, that our lives make sense when they are uh, gathered around Jesus as the center point, uh, we find that really hard to believe. That's not what greatness looks like, putting our faith in a crucified Messiah. And so we miss Jesus. And like the first thief on the cross, we are tempted to say, if you really are the Christ, then prove it to me. Prove it to me. And notice, how should he prove it? If you really are the Christ, then save yourself and us. (laughs) What is he saying? Jesus, I will believe in you if you get me out of this. Jesus, I'm hanging on a cross here. I'm going to be dead in minutes or hours. And uh, I'll believe in you if you get me out of this Uh, I'm in a really tight spot here. Save me, and I will be with you. And I think all of us have said that. I think that 
those of us who are Christians, this is how you find Jesus in the first place. You come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you. Save me. Uh, we're going about our lives and we run into something difficult and we turn to God and we say, God, I don't know what to do, but if you get me through this, I will believe in you. I will follow you. I'll do what you ask me to do. Just get me out of this. Just like the first thief on the cross. Whether it's work or relationship or health, whatever it is. And what we're doing when we say this is we are treating God like we would treat a personal assistant. Hey, here's what I want done. Now make it happen, please. God, I will believe in you. I will follow you if you get me out of this. If you do what I want. Tim Keller, pastor, says this. When we say this, we are saying, there's a God up in heaven who is great enough to be able to do all of this for me, and yet he can't be any smarter than me. <laughs> I want a God who is omnipotent, but not omniscient. I want a God who is all-powerful, but only as wise as I am. I want a God who will do what I want him to do, uh, who is powerful enough to accomplish it for me, but who is not any wiser than I am. This is the way that we all come to God at first. God, I have a problem. Please solve it. And if that's as far as we get, we will miss who Jesus really is. And perhaps one of the lessons that we ought to learn uh, in this time that we are in is that we are not as strong as we think we are. That we are not as wise as we think we are. How many of us is saying something today that uh, disagrees with what we said a week ago? <laughs> A week ago, most of us thought this was no big deal. Maybe some of us still think this is no big deal. It's gonna affect all of us. We are not as wise as we think we are. We all come to God like the first thief and say, if you are God, then do your job and help me. But if we're gonna see who Jesus really is, something else is gonna to have to happen. And so look at the second thief with me now. In the second thief, we see who Jesus really is. Both criminals have been mocking him, but somehow the second thief sees something in Jesus. Jesus has just said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And somehow, the second thief sees who Jesus, is, Jesus really is, changes his mind, and he says to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. And when he says, remember me, remember me is both a confession of faith and a plea for help. Confession of faith and a plea for help. Jesus, remember me. What's happening here? The first thief is saying, Jesus, I will be with you if you get me out of this trouble that I'm in. But the second thief is saying, Jesus, I will be with you in this trouble. Uh, let me say that differently. The first thief says, Jesus, I will be with you if you get me out of this trouble. The second thief says, Jesus, I will be in this trouble as long as I can be with you. I will be in this trouble as long as I can be with you. Jesus, remember me. Now, how does he come to that conclusion? And why is he willing to suffer as long as he can be with Jesus? Well, what's happening is that the pain and the suffering and the horror of what he's going through, he, like Jesus, is being crucified on a cross. The horror of that helps him to see something in Jesus that he couldn't see before. He sees Jesus for who he truly is. Because he says to the other thief, the first thief is mocking Jesus, and, 
And the second thief says, we are suffering justly. We deserve what we're getting here on the cross. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. What he's saying is, we're getting what we deserve, but Jesus is suffering not because of anything he's done. He's suffering for somebody else. His suffering and death, he's suffering a death that he doesn't deserve, but he's doing it for you, he's doing it for me, he's doing it for all who trust him. He's doing it to pay uh, the debt that we all owe God because of our disobedience, because of our sin. And when you get that, and when, not just that you understand that in an intellectual sense, but when that really pierces you, it transforms you. Jesus suffered and died not because of anything he did. He did it for me. He did it for you. And the second thief, when he sees who Jesus truly is, it lifts his eyes off of his circumstances, and he is happy to go through anything just to be with Jesus. Notice the second thief doesn't say, save me. He doesn't say, get me off this cross. Now, of course, he would be happy to get off the cross, right? But he says, I'm willing to suffer this as long as I can be with you, Jesus. You know, there's a kind of person who always thinks that they're getting a raw deal. You know, they always think that they are the victim, that uh, they're not getting the good things they deserve, that when bad things happen to them, it's always somebody else's fault. They're always getting less than they deserve. And when you see the beauty of who Jesus is, and that he hung on the cross not to pay for his sins, but to pay for yours, it will change you. And it will turn that whole way of seeing your life on its head. And you will begin to say, I'm actually getting far more than I deserve here. God has been better than me, to me than I deserve. I deserve something far worse, and so I don't really like it, but I will go anything if it means that I can be with you, Jesus. Jesus, remember me as a confession of faith and a plea for help. And so those of us that are Christians, I wonder, you know, we, we get the confession of faith part. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. Jesus, I believe in you. But do we really want Jesus to help us? So often we want Jesus to, you know, save us and do what we want him to do. Are we really content to go through anything if it means being with Jesus? And that brings us to the third point. The third point is this. When we look at Jesus, we see what we get when we see who Jesus truly is. Jesus' response to this plea from the second thief is this. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now let me ask you a question. I wonder, what do you think Jesus means when he says that? Today you will be with me in paradise. I think that our tendency is to think that when Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, what he's saying is, hey, we're both hanging on the cross, we're both dying, we're hours, maybe minutes away from death, and so today I'm going to get to heaven, and guess what, you're, congratulations, you're going to be there too. <laughs> we think Jesus is saying, uh, you're going to go to heaven after you die, great news. And if you look at what he's saying, it, it definitely means at least that. But I think it means more than that, too. Uh, because the word with me is sort of the, 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 the words with me are sort of, that's the emphasis in, in Jesus' statement here. Uh, Jesus is saying, today you will be with me. Now, 
he's not making sort of a sentimental statement about like, we're right here together on crosses next to each other, so we're together. Um, or he's not sort of saying, sort of saying like in a, in a sentimental way, like, ah, oh, we'll, it'll be fine, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get through this together. What Jesus is saying is this, wherever I am, there you are with me. Because of our union with Christ, if you are in Christ, then wherever Jesus is, you are with him. Uh, there's so many passages in the Bible that bring this out, but in Ephesians 2, 5 and 6, uh, the Apostle Paul says something astounding. Uh, he says, God made us alive together with Christ, past tense, that makes sense, right? That uh, in the past, we were, we were made alive with Christ. He says, by grace you've been saved. And then verse 6, he says, and, and God has raised us up with him, again, past tense. I mean, I guess that makes sense because Jesus' resurrection is past tense. But then he says, he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Past tense. He seated us with him. How can that be? Uh, doesn't it seem like he should say, he will seat us with him in the heavenly places? But that's not what Paul says. Past tense, he seated us with him in the heavenly places. Why is that? Because Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He's enthroned in heaven. And because you are in him, wherever you are sitting right now, you are already seated, past tense, in the heavenly places with God. Whatever happens to Jesus happens to you if you are in him. Where he is, you are. If you are with him, if you're a Christian, though you're sitting here, you're already seated with him there. So what Jesus is saying is this, today you will be with me. I'm about to be exalted into the glory of my Father, and today you will be with me. And this is true whether you have already died or not. You are already seated with him. And so what this means is this, knowing that you are seated, past tense, with him in the heavenly places, that that is your future, that it is already so guaranteed that we can talk about it like it's already done, Knowing that that is your future changes the way that you live in the present. Knowing where you're going changes everything about the way that you live now. This week, uh, man, I stress about money all the time. <laughs> and I get to a place where I, I'm just, I don't know what's going to happen, and I'm freaking out, and I can't sleep because I'm stressed about money. And this week, my retirement statement came in the mail. And I opened it and was amazed by how much money was in my retirement uh, account. And I looked at my wife and I said, well, at least we've got that to fall back on if something happens. And that, just saying that, knowing that there is a future, a plan, allowed me to live confidently and sleep at night in the present. Knowing where you're going changes the way that you live in the present. And this is not the key for you. Uh, this is the key for you and I, for Christians, for the church, for Resurrection OC, to be the people that God is calling us to be right now, like today, this week, in the midst of this crisis. Knowing that our future is secure transforms our present. How do we live in a world that seems to be falling apart? How, do we, how, how can we be the people that God has called us to be in this time? This week I was uh, rereading a book I'd read a long time ago uh, by a guy named Rodney Stark, who was a sociologist at Baylor, and he, he, he wrote a book uh, several years ago called The Rise of Christianity, in which as a sociologist, uh, he, he talks about why did Christianity thrive and flourish 
when um, it, it was by no means inevitable that it would. You know, uh, having its roots and origin in Judaism, but then arising in the Roman Empire, how did uh, Christianity transform the Roman Empire and then outlast it uh, to become, you know, the largest uh, global religion uh, today? How did that happen? Why did Christianity flourish, especially given that paganism at the time in the Roman Empire was so incredibly well entrenched and established? And um, chapter four of The Rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark talks about the plagues in the second and third century. And he talks about how the way that Christians responded to these plagues in the second and third uh, century was a key factor in the growth and rise of Christianity for three reasons. He says, first of all, that Christianity was better able to explain what was going on. Christians were able to offer hope in the midst of a world where paganism simply had run out of answers. Secondly, Christianity flourished and thrived because Christians went into the cities to care for the sick and dying while pagans fled for their own safety. And Christians going into the cities and offering care for the sick meant that those who were cared for by Christians were more likely to survive. And so when the plagues ended and when they got better, scores, dozens, thousands of people converted to Christianity because they had been cared for by Christians. And then thirdly, the third factor was that after the plagues had subsided, uh, these plagues, second and third century, uh, I mean, in the second century, the emperor Marcus Aurelius died of the plague himself. It affected so many people that many, many, many people, pagans and Christians alike, were left without social ties. Friends, family members had all passed away, but the church remained. And the church provided a social network for those who were left all alone, resulting in mass conversion. Rodney Stark concludes that the rise of Christianity was not inevitable. The, uh, the fall of paganism was not inevitable. Paganism was loved out of existence by loving Christians who cared for the sick and the poor. So Christians, can I tell you something? Your neighbors who aren't Christians, they don't care what you believe. They just don't. They don't care what you believe. And we cannot simply talk about the gospel's response to suffering. We have to live it out. The world needs to see Christians responding in a different way to what's going on in the world. When fear grips us, when scarcity, I mean, maybe the most Christian thing you could do is give away rolls of toilet paper this week. Give away sanitizer. <laughs> the world needs to see us apply the gospel to our own hearts and they need to see it in action as we serve our neighbors. Obviously, we don't want to be a part of spreading this disease. But people in high-risk categories, contract employees and hourly and low-wage earners, families that need school meal programs, parents without childcare, teenagers who are out of school, healthcare providers, all of these people will need help and support. We live in a time that has been called a secular age where for the last, I don't know, 50, 70 years, we have moved increasingly as a culture to uh, build in a life where we believe we do not need God at our center in order to live successful and comfortable lives. 
We have redefined comfort and success in sort of material, uh, physical, this-worldly things. And if anything, the coronavirus is unmasking the futility of that way of living. Because it doesn't matter what you have. The emptiness of this way of life is being unmasked before us. And so, church, we have a tremendous opportunity now to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. We are the body of Christ. We have a tremendous opportunity to love our neighbors at this time, to move outward in love when the world turns inward with fear. We have a Savior who fought sin and death for us, and so we live with hope even though the world is dark. This is not a fairy tale. It's the truest possible story. It's good news. And that's why we gather every week to remind ourselves of the good news, to live it out before our, other, our, our neighbors. We need to tell it to our neighbors in a way uh, that they can understand, not simply in words, but through the way that we live in the midst of this time. So friends, let me simply read these words of Jesus again. Jesus said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Would you pray with me? Oh Jesus, we thank you that you fought for us. That when the world was dark, you gave yourself up for the world. This is not what we think greatness looks like. And yet in your life, death, and resurrection, you turn the world on its head. Help us, Jesus, to be people who follow you. We pray in your name. Amen.